It's time for Drive-By Theology with Dr. Steve Lawson and Todd Friel. Welcome to lecture number nine of Drive-By Theology. Some people would say that hell is eternal separation from God. He certainly wouldn't be there because he's just in heaven. The doctrine of omnipresence might challenge that theory. Uh, One of the incommunicable attributes of God... God is everywhere, and I'm not really good at logic and deduction, Dr. Lawson, but if God is everywhere, hell is somewhere, God is in hell? Yes, he is. God is there with the fullness of his wrath and vengeance. Uh, Sinners in hell could only hope that God is not in hell, but nothing could be further from the truth. There is no place where God does not exist. And that is the precise definition of omnipresence. There is no place that God does not exist, and fully, we could add. Yes. Wherever God is, and that's everywhere, he's there with the fullness of all that he is. You see, now, a lot of theologians paint hell as if somehow we're going to be kind of in the dark, and the demons are running hell, and the (laughs) devil is is sending them out to do surprise kidney punches to people (laughs) who perished. Yeah. That's not the truth. That's not the truth. No, God is the agent. God is the author. God is the one who is inflicting the wrath uh, upon those who are damned in hell. God is the one who is judging Satan and damning Satan even in hell. So if God is everywhere, including hell... We do read in the Bible that God is separated from those who are in hell. How do we harmonize that concept that hell is eternal separation from God, but God is actually totally present in hell? Well, in hell, God is withholding any manifestation of his goodness or his kindness to those who are in hell. So there is a separation from the benevolence of God in hell, but there is no separation between God and his wrath upon those who are unbelievers. That is just one of the implications of studying the doctrine of the omnipresence of God, which is a monstrously big implication. So let us do what we do in systematic theology, and that is establish the theology, not drawing a conclusion first, coming up with a conclusion after we take a look at all of the Bible verses that describe God's omnipresence, starting with Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? That's a rhetorical question implying the obvious answer, nowhere. Where can I go from your spirit, capital S? Or where can I flee from your presence? The answer to that is nowhere. The verse continues, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is a euphemism for the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, that's to the east. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, that's to the west, the Mediterranean Sea. Even there, your right hand will lead me. North, south, east, west, up, down, no matter where you go, God's right hand will lay hold of David or anyone else. That would be enough to establish the omnipresence of God, but there are more verses. Of course there are. 1 Kings eight twenty seven. but will God dwell on the earth? That's a question. The answer rhetorically is yes. The verse continues, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house, referring to the temple, which I have built. In other words, God cannot be contained even in any part or some large part 
of the universe that he has created. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. If his eye is in every place, then God himself is in every place. Jeremiah 23, 23 through 24. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Heavens and the earth meaning everything. He fills it. So it's not like a part of God is sort of in Baghdad. No, he's as completely there as he is here and everywhere. Yes. You, you cannot divide God up into parts. Wherever God is, he's there in the fullness of his being. Ezekiel 8.12 supports that. Acts 7.48, Acts 17.27 through 28. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. God is not far from, if he's not far from any of us, that means he's near to all of us. That yes. means he's everywhere. And that means no matter where you are, he is near to you. So those are direct assertion Bible verses. We do have some indirect Bible verses that also point to this. Well, there's Amos 9, 2, which in essence says you can run, but you cannot hide from that God. That would be in essence, because it's a long <laughs> verse. You kind of smashed into, you can't hide, Yeah, because God knows where everybody is. Right. What about coming to a conclusion based on an observation? So not a direct Bible verse that says God is everywhere, but can I, for instance, look at the creation, recognize there's a creator, and draw conclusions about God's omnipresence? Certainly. If God created everything, God was present when he created everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That clearly implies that God is in all of the heavens and all of the earth. And even beyond that, that he would have to be more than what is in existence because the creator isn't going to be smaller than the creation. Exactly. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all of these things and all of these things came into being. So God, clearly bigger than, he's everywhere even bigger than the universe, yes. which is kind of impossible to imagine. Well, it's it's mind-boggling. Now, the implication that we already shared about the doctrine of omnipresence kind of alters our understanding of what hell is all about, and that's kind of a scary implication and a pretty awesome implication. There is, however, a lot of comfort in understanding the doctrine of omnipresence. Yes, that no matter where you go for the rest of your life, God is there and God is with you. And for us as believers, this is enormously comforting. Whether we go into the hospital, whether we go into a trial or a dark valley, uh, the shadow of death, God is with us and he is there with all of his grace and all of his strength and all of his help. That's what Jesus said at the end of the Great Commission. Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. And in Hebrews 13, he says, I will never, never leave you nor forsake you. What a comfort this is. And even when friends may forsake us, the Lord will never depart from us. So this is a doctrine of enormous comfort. And I know as a preacher, every time I step into the pulpit, there's not one in the pulpit. There's two standing in that pulpit. God is with me, and Christ is standing in me as I stand in that pulpit. 
I will never face a challenge. I will never face a difficulty. But that God in his fullness is there bringing all of his resources to bear upon my life. And an implication that's kind of a mixture of that's kind of scary and kind of comforting, knowing that God is everywhere, all times, fully present, can be a curb in my behavior. Yes, that does curb our behavior because as we think through our going to the internet or to a movie or picking up a magazine uh, or whatever it may be, we need to realize that God is with us there. And that is why in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, do not join your body to a harlot because God is in that bed with you. What a restraint that should be. Think of Jonah as he was trying to run away from God's will. You can't get away from God. Um, God is wherever it is you're trying to run away to. And it, so when people talk about, you know, I, I really need a good accountability partner, you've got one. <laughs> yeah. You're God who is omnipresent. Yeah, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You've got three persons. Remember that the next time you're tempted to sin. Now, another attribute of God, which is incommunicable, we don't get one of these, the invisibility of God. And Steve, I just, somebody's going, invisibility of God. Is this really important? Is there any application? Well, let's start with the Bible verses that teach us that God is invisible. Certainly. John 1, verse 18 says, no one has seen God at any time. That's a clear statement of his invisibility because in heaven, there are many people in heaven. Uh, There are angels in heaven, yet no, it says no one has seen God at any time. And here's the reason why, Todd, God is spirit and you cannot see spirit. God is invisible. John 5, 37, uh, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. No man has ever seen his form. Anytime anyone ever says to you, yeah, I've seen God, just run away from that person. <laughs> they haven't seen God. They're in a delusional state. But if we, if we would see God in our unregenerated state, oh, you'd be dead. You, you would be dead. That's why Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock and exactly. just saw the back of his glory passing because any more than that would have turned him to toast. Exactly. John six forty six. not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father but God is invisible to the rest of us. 1 Timothy 1.17, 1 Timothy 6.16, 1 John 4.12. No one has seen God at any time. Now, this that, that's a little tricky. So let me just translate that for you if you don't. <laughs> no one has seen God at any time. Yeah, that's what it means, and it means what it says. Now, we need to qualify the invisibility of God because there are times in the Bible when it appears that people can see God a term that typically theologians use is a theophany or a Christophany. Right. Well, God has chosen to make his presence seen by manifesting himself, for example, as light, bright, shining light, which is the idea of the Shekinah glory of God. The radiant outshining of his holiness is his manifest glory. The burning bush. The angel of the Lord. Typically, when you see the angel of the Lord, we can assume that is either a theophany, a physical manifestation of God, either God the Father or a Christophany, which would be Jesus. And we can try to figure that each one of those out by context. But the Lord's back, the pillar of cloud and fire. Yes. Those are all ways that God has manifested himself. And then ultimately, the greatest manifestation of God is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
we know this from John 1, verse 18, that Jesus Christ is the one who has come to explain God, literally exegete God. John 14, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you have not yet come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the full, perfect revelation of the Father to us. Very clear in Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3, I always remember Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, great verses. Yes. John 1, yes. make it very clear the divinity of Jesus Christ. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That's Jesus, a visible picture of the invisible God. Yes. Huge. Now, the implication of all of this becomes magnificent when we consider, for instance, Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then in eternity, in our glorified state, face to face, we are going to get to see God? Yes, in some sense, we will be able to see God. It may be as the bright outshining light of his glory. It's called the beatific vision. It is the greatest blessing to ever come to a soul created in his image to be able to look upon the king in all of his glory. And then I think that beatific light concept is supported in Revelation 22, 3 through 4, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no light because God is the light yes. that will illuminate heaven. God's glory will light up and illumine the new heavens and the new earth. How bright. So we'll always be in the presence of God. Yes. He's lighting up the place. All right, yes. now that is the invisibility of God and what we have to look forward to. But there's another I word that describes one of God's incommunicable attributes, and that is the independence of God. I love this one. Theologians typically use aseity. Yes. What are we talking about? Well, that God is entirely self-sufficient. He is independent. He is autonomous within himself, and he has no needs outside of himself. For example, God did not create us because he was lonely, and there was some hole in his soul. No, God is totally self-sufficient, self-satisfied, within the relationships, within the Trinity, and within the Godhead, and each person within himself. And so God has created simply to radiate his own glory and put that glory on display. But this independence of God, the aseity of God, is one of the most mind-boggling truths in all of Scripture. And it counters what so many wacky theologians teach. It's almost as if God has a Todd and Steve shape hole in his heart and he just yeah. needs us. No, he doesn't need us. And you say, once again, that hurts my self-esteem. No, this is so comforting. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to. And so my acceptance in his sight is not based on me. My existence is not based on my performance. I can count on him who is far more reliable than I am. And so these doctrines that sound kind of hard and maybe bruising to our ego are so much more comforting than squishy glop. 
Yes, the greater our God, the greater our worship, the greater the pleasure we take in Him, uh, the greater the strength we draw from Him, uh, the greater the energy that we have to serve Him, uh, the higher our view, the grander our view of God, the greater is our heart for God. And I just, you just go, oh, God. Jesus said, come unto me if you're weary, striving, you're trying to get the job done, I will give you rest. And for those of us who are bent and inclined toward working, performing, earning God's favor, oh, and we can trust God who doesn't need us, but he chooses to have us anyway. That's that right. just makes me go, oh, good, oh, good. All right, some Bible verses, Exodus three fourteen. I am who I am. He's the eternally existent one who doesn't need anything, Acts 17, 24, and 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Steve, there are also some indirect assertions that point toward God's independence. Absolutely, and one would be Job forty-one eleven. Who has given to me, God is the speaker, who has given to me that I should repay him? No one has given God anything that would make God a debtor to that person. That shows how self-sufficient God is in himself, that no one has given God anything that he has need of. Psalm 50, 10 through 12, Job 22, 2, Romans eleven thirty five 35 through 36, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Acts 17, 25, John 1, 1 through 3 about Jesus, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Psalm 90, verse 2. God is independent, not in need of anything, including you and me, and that sure is comforting. And this was Lecture 9 of Drive-By Theology.